All right, welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast today. Jeffrey Chu, he's finally made it. It's been a while. <laughs> welcome, Jeffrey. It's been a while. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I went to reschedule. No, for... I was a bit busy. I was sick, but yeah. more healthy now. Now sick training... and traveling, all of it. <laughs> it's, it's been a while since, yeah. uh, since I've been trying to get you on. You were on my when I first started this podcast. You're on my initial list of people to bring on. I, I really enjoy mm-hmm. your philosophy of training. That. I think I think I mentioned it in the William Whalen podcast as well. Actually, how how I enjoy your content, enjoy the way you see strength conditioning for I guess for athletic development. Uh, I think we align on a lot of different things too. So do you want to maybe give a brief background about yourself and we'll go straight into some of those. Um, I'm a strength conditioning coach. I'm a martial artist. I'm owner of GC performance training. So what I offer is one-on-one coaching for combat athletes, online coaching. I try to write a lot about combat sports and S and C and how I think development should be for fight sports. And I've been lucky to connect with a lot of like-minded coaches and really draw from everyone's experiences. Yeah. If anyone's following Jeffrey on, on Instagram or anything like that, you'll see a lot of that content. And I guess you could say it differs a lot from the typical mainstream uh, fighter <laughs> Instagram of doing a whole lot of uh, random things. So let's maybe dive into a bit of that philosophy. I'm going to give you a very general overarching question. That is, what is your mm-hmm. philosophy of strength conditioning for combat athletes? My general philosophy is we start from the combat sport itself. And then from there, we branch out and we analyze what strength and power demands we need for the sport, what endurance and conditioning demands we need from the sport, and what we're already getting from the sport. So in terms of strength training, in a lot of combat sports like MMA, um, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai boxing, you're not getting that high-low training stimulus, whether that's to build muscle or to build um, rate of force development or change your hormonal response. We're not getting a lot of that from the sport itself. So I see strength training as a necessary supplement. Nice. And then the conditioning side, is there is that a, a similar approach in terms of how you're trying to supplement what's happening on from technical training? That used to be my, like when I first started working with fighters, um, I read like Joel Jameson books, I, I'm reading exercise physiology books, and that's kind of where I branched out. I was in that kind of mindset of lots of aerobic training because we need to build the gas tank. We need to do all these runs and um, assault bike intervals and all of that, gen- what I consider general modalities because they don't really mimic the sport. But in the last two years, I've been pretty vocal about getting at, at least 95 of your, 95% of your conditioning within the sport itself. And that goes over some people's heads sometimes because I'm... Um, telling people, Hey, we don't really need to dive super deep into energy systems. Like I know you've had guests on and like PhD researchers talking about sprint interval training. Personally, that's not my philosophy on building conditioning. I don't see conditioning as solely energy system development. I see Mm -hmm. it as tactical, strategical. Um, What I see conditioning is 
It's are you able to repeat the sporting movements under various um, environments, stressful environments? Are you able to do it in training, in sparring, and then in the fight? <clears throat> I, I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to have Vern Gambetta on. It'll be the week after mm-hmm. this podcast drops, and he's obviously been very vocal about. I guess you could say anti-energy systems as well. He, he's of the idea of the interplay between energy systems and pretty much what you're saying there. And I really like that that philosophy and look into into sports training too. Obviously, you can have a pure physiological approach, which is, hey, I'm just targeting energy system adaptations, or you can have almost like what you mentioned there, like a work capacity approach. You know, can I sustain uh, whatever the output is for however long it is and repeat it over and over again, and then can I manipulate training? essentially variables to be able to uh, sustain whatever uh, power output or workload it is for short, medium, long-term and things like that. But do you want to maybe give an example of, obviously you talked about specific conditioning within that. How Maybe let's, maybe let's give some specific examples for strikers, MMA and for um, jiu-jitsu athletes. What will be some examples of a specific conditioning session for this? I mean, obviously there's lots of different work to race ratios, but just even just some exercise examples within that. Right, so when we talk about, let's say, aerobic development, and we agree that aerobic development is all about creating structural demands, making sure our heart's pumping out enough blood, um, everything that you would read in an exercise physiology book. I think S&C coaches and sports scientists understand that point, but they apply it in the wrong way. So they would say, okay, go on the bike for... 45 minutes because, or 45 to 60 minutes because that's what aerobic training is. But I would argue that that could be better spent on the heavy bag or shadow boxing or practicing some sort of sports specific skill. So that's why I always say skills practice is conditioning. And a lot of skill coaches know this. They just Mm -hmm. use running as a supplement, but (laughs) Yeah, they they know that in order to be a better martial artist, you have to practice more martial arts. And I'm just afraid this generation of fighters is, I guess, too worried about modern, I guess, modern training sciences. They'll listen to the sports scientists, they'll run a lot, skip a lot, but they're not boxing enough or they're not practicing their sport enough. Is there... Is there a point in which you wouldn't prescribe as much specific conditioning if their technical load is really high? Do you have maybe a a general benchmark of when you'd be like, okay, we probably need to spend more time doing things like biking, running, whatever it is, versus uh, boxing for conditioning? In terms of technical load, I'm looking at how many hours they're training per day. If mm-hmm. a recreational athlete comes to me and says, I want to be a competitive boxer, I'm boxing one hour, um, each session, and I'm doing three boxing sessions a week. Can I add in assault bike <laughs> yeah. intervals? Can I add in runs? And I'm like, you're barely at that minimum threshold of what it takes to be an elite athlete. So if you're boxing three times a week, then you might want to even double that. And your conditioning is going to get better just from that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I've said this before, I think the problem that we kind of face in combat sports currently is there's a big influx of SNC coaches like us, um, sports scientists coming into the field, they're mm-hmm. purely looking at it from a physiological standpoint, which works yeah. really well based off of the background that sports scientists and SNC coaches have, which is cyclical endurance sports. They look at marathon runners, they look at cyclists, they put them on 
like the VO2 max machine, they measure blood lactate. I think they are trying to reduce combat sports performance to purely physiology, which mm. doesn't really align with what high-performance combat sports is. High-performance combat sports to me means the physiotherapy side, the tactical side. Are we building the right culture in the gym? How are they developing skills-wise? Mm. Um, what kind of development system do they have in terms of like skill development and uh, drilling and sparring? Is there... So that, that's what I really want to touch on in the next few years. Yeah. Like not, not necessarily step away from strength and conditioning because I'm still a strength and conditioning coach by profession, but I'm looking to integrate strength exercises and what I know about energy systems to apply it to combat sports. Mm. So how would that look then with, if you're are you talking about integrating, obviously as a skill set for yourself, but would you then integrate that within say a technical training session itself? You, you're looking to almost blend the approaches together. So a session is not purely technical, it's designed around technical training, but also developing the physical attributes you need. <clears throat> yeah. So for example, something that I've been doing for quite a few years now is applying what I know about energy systems to mm -hmm. let's say heavy bag training mm -hmm. and let's say I'll prescribe heavy bag intervals for one, for one of my athletes. I'll say, we're going to work on these skills on the heavy bag because that's what you need based on what I yeah. know about striking as a very amateur striking coach. <laughs> and then as a SNC coach, I know that I need to give you this amount of work and this amount of rest intervals just to not necessarily target the energy systems, but I'm seeing which work to rest ratios work well with whatever skills we're trying to develop. Like we're not trying, if we're trying mm. to develop um, explosive punching power on the heavy bag, for example, then my rest intervals have to be prescribed accordingly. Yeah. Whether that's so, complete rest or longer mm. rest in general. <clears throat> and then yeah. some coaches would call that quote unquote power endurance. Yeah. But I don't like calling it power. Like I, I find it better for myself to create buy-in if I'm speaking in the language of the boxer. Yeah. So you just call it explosive, explosive power or explosive punching work or something, something, uh, yep. easy to understand. Yep. Yeah. Uh, obviously you, you mentioned obviously the, the rec maybe the recreational boxer that's coming, that's boxing three hours a week and he wants to do extra conditioning. So it's better spent doing the, the specific style of conditioning. If, have you got any, I guess, maybe amateur guys that are training full-time or pro guys training full-time that have really high boxing loads? And what, and what would you consider as almost a full-time boxing load before considering doing conditioning outside of the specific modalities? I would say on average, if you're training five to six times a week and you're doubling up on some of the days, like two a days, hmm. that's when I would consider adding on like a full day of not, not, not a full day. I'm um, sorry, a separate session of let's say assault bike intervals or <laughs> hill sprints yeah. or something like that. But I do like to integrate some running and just low volume running, low volume skipping to tack on to their skill sessions. Okay. How does that look? And I think, um, let's say they have a technical session and I know they're sparring maybe they're getting 
five to eight rounds, and that's all they're doing for that class. I would say, okay, that if we're if we're counting this as a high training day, then the volume isn't enough. I'd say. So I would add, let's say, skip rope intervals, three rounds, thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, um, just to keep that training load high for that day. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's probably good for anyone listening as well who's maybe short on time. Kind of th- that one technical session is their training session for the day, and being able to tack something on the end is is yeah. easy enough versus trying to do a second session. But like skill coaches know this, <clears throat> and they prescribe it really well, maybe more, maybe better than S and C coaches. They work with the boxers mm. for more hours per week. They know, although it's old school, they they know what needs to be done in terms of general conditioning. Yeah. Now it's interesting. You obviously mentioned about sparring. Okay. That might be a higher day. How do you structure your weeks then for, for your fighters? Obviously you mentioned <coughs> sparring. There might be a higher day, but do you follow, uh, like, like a high, low model? Do you follow maybe like a low, medium, high, or are you just trying to fit things in when, when the fighter has time to do it? When I had a smaller roster of fighters, I would use the high-low. And now that I'm, I'm working with more fighters, I realize that their schedule is just completely fucked. Like, it's impossible to do <laughs> high-low. I applaud anyone who can apply the high-low model, like, consistently from week to week. So mm. currently, what I do is just, I ask them, what days do you feel the freshest? Yeah. And then we place those important uh, strength and power days, maybe in the morning or anything, but after training, cause we want them to be pretty fresh. If we want to make those yeah. gains on the strength sessions. Gotcha. Yeah. That... So sometimes they have to double up. Sometimes they're doing it on days. They're not, um, yeah. training skills. That, that's the, I um... feel like a lot of fighters are at the mercy of either their class schedule or their team. I think we all like SNC coaches have this kind of illusion that every athlete we work with is some pro that's able to control every variable of their own camp, which (laughs) just isn't true. Like half more than half of my team are amateurs, but obviously they still work hard. They put in the work. It's just scheduling that we have to work around. Yeah. On that scheduling as well. Obviously you mentioned doing the strength, the strength power, in the mornings, I guess, I guess some people will say, Hey, shouldn't I do the technical training first? Because that's more important and I need to do the skills. And then shouldn't I do strength power in the afternoon? What, what's your philosophy around that? My philosophy is you have to work with your schedule. If you don't have morning technical trainings and they just don't offer that at your gym, like, yeah, yeah. Um, if they do have to perform strength in the morning, then I keep that in mind and I lower the volume a bit, make sure that they're as fresh as possible heading into each session. Yeah. What, what does your strength training, what do your strength training or strength and power sessions look like? I know I've seen a, a few clips and, and things on Instagram and mm-hmm. you've got a few different athletes going on there. And I guess what, what, what's just, what surrounds your philosophy regarding strength and power training? Obviously you mentioned there you might lower the volumes here. Are you looking at like more of a low volume approach? You want to keep them fresh for technical sessions? I guess I'm assuming it depends on the time of year and when they have fights coming up, how much they're doing. 
I don't think it's much different than other experienced SNC combat sports coaches. Um, exercise selection might be a bit different. Let's say, let's say Will loves um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, split squats with uh, hand supported split squats. Mm. A yeah. lot of my athletes just don't have access to that, so I feel yeah. like we're at the mercy of our equipment <laughs> sometimes. Um, I like to program concurrently, so I like I don't like phases where we're heavily invested into power, heavily invested mm-hmm. into like heavy load strength exercises. I like to just keep it all in the mix. So yeah, each session will look like uh, dynamic warm up, some plyometrics, some ballistics, whether that's slams or med ball punches or whatever, and then we get into the compound lifts, end off with some accessories, and then some robustness work nice do you want to maybe dive a little bit into your robustness work i know i know you've you've mentioned that quite a bit as well on on your social media what what are you trying to achieve with your robustness work and i guess what are some example exercises and things you're doing there uh for your athletes robustness work robustness circuits is what i call it uh, i'm not even sure where i got the name from maybe i didn't make it up but... Uh, hopefully I, I'm popularizing it, but I'm essentially putting three to four exercises together for Mm -hmm. that based on the athlete's injury history and the most common injuries within their sport. So let's say if we take, uh, boxing, for example, I'll, I'll look up boxing injuries. What's the prevalence for each body part. And then I'll look at my athlete's injury history and then, okay, let's say neck, we need strengthening. Uh, let's say our boxer's got a, a history of knee pain. I'll throw in some direct knee exercises in there. And then maybe something like the lower leg complex, like the ankle or the wrist, which is usually the first points of contact for uh, combat mm. sport athletes. <clears throat> so I'll throw it all together within a, within a circuit at the end of the session. And they'll perform anywhere from two to four sets of that, no rest in between. Let's say like a lying neck curl with the harness, um, dumbbell wrist curls, and then maybe some uh, split squats or split squat isometrics. Um, I think they're just exercises and body parts that are easily forgotten and Mm. people don't like to do. Like they like to do the jumps, they like to do their med ball slams and punches, but when it comes to the boring shit, like they tend to- Calf raises. Calf raises, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we My philosophy on that is like work <clears throat> at a low to moderate volume and then we get that mm-hmm. in frequently and then over mm-hmm. the training year you've developed a ton of neck strength um, a ton of mm. wrist and forearm strength, grip strength that translates to the sport uh, How would that circuit differ for, <clears throat> let's just say for a grappler like a jiu-jitsu athlete, do you have certain exercises you go through there? Mm-hmm so we might look at the hip and the knee more or the shoulder joint just based off of um, injury data. Okay. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, like grapplers suffer different injuries than striking athletes. Striking yeah. athletes get blows to the head, uh, but grappling athletes are resisting their opponent and their opponent normally puts on a lot of force within like the elbow joint or their shoulder joint, depending on the submission. Mm-hmm. 
Or you so get inverted and someone's crushing well. your lower neck. Yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All things there. So stop inverting everyone. You're going to fuck your neck up. <laughs> now, if, yeah. if you do things wrong, then you're not going to do, do too much damage. But <clears throat> let's go back into some of that training week structure. Obviously, you're, you're fitting it in wherever. Do you maybe have, or are you able to share an example of, you're working mainly with boxers now, I think, in person. Do you want to maybe share like a typical training, how a typical training week looks uh, for these guys? Yeah, um, they're always going to have one rest day. Whether, and they could be shadow boxing, they could be doing some um, dynamic warm ups or mobility work. But I always want at least one dedicated rest day for my fighters. They're probably going to be training boxing anywhere from five to six, five to six times a week. And then we tack mm -hmm. on two really high quality strength training sessions and focusing on high load exercises, plow metrics, uh, robustness circuits, like we talked about. Yeah. And then I try to work around their sparring. I'm obviously not going to put a strength and a boxing session on a day before sparring. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it really depends on the on the athlete. I've worked with boxers that like to get a lift in before sparring days. Okay, that's not too so, dissimilar from um, how a, a few sports teams are doing things now, with almost like using it as a fifteen twenty minute primer in the gym or primer, stuff, right. and then yeah, and then going yeah. out onto the field and doing uh, you know high speed whatever it is or or they are their high intensity uh, sports training. Yeah. Yeah. You've worked in a lot of team sports for the players that mm. don't play their training yeah. load is obviously a little higher in because terms their of... playing time is lower. Yeah. Let's, let's say you get like a rugby team or a football team. Yeah. Obviously not everyone gets the same playing time. Yeah. Does their S and C look different? Yeah. They should do extra stuff. <clears throat> yeah. But it, it depends. Like for, for example, so you have like, like if you're playing Saturday, Friday would be like a captain's run for the team. And then obviously the non-playing guys typically will um, either be on the field or they'll mm. be, or they'll do some of the extra stuff then. So it might be extra gym, extra conditioning, whatever it is. And then they'll have uh, like almost like Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, they might do something, but usually Saturday, Sunday off. And then Monday they'll do more than the guys who played uh, in training. But then as well, you've obviously got guys that are on the bench that play less minutes than those guys starting who might play a full match. So then straight after the match, you'll have guys that played, like, say, less than 20 minutes. They'll be on the field. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why you see, if you see on TV, you see people running after the games on the field. <coughs> Some yeah, players. Yeah. So yeah. they're doing, like, they're basically doing top-ups just to essentially keep everyone near the same level throughout. But it's... Um, some people have it down to an exact exact science, but it's not always that easy because obviously the game's chaotic. <laughs> yeah, uh, I find that to be the more difficult part of the profession, just managing training load, managing the team, yeah. managing the culture. I think that's yeah. really underrated compared to things that we normally talk about on social media, like exercise selection and you fucking go at each other's throats just based off of exercises <laughs> it's crazy it is crazy yeah i mean it's the team aspect of combat sport i mean it's having full-time s&c's within the team is pretty is relatively new right i'd say so yeah yeah 
So it's like out here, in, here. out here in Thailand, you won't find that in Muay Thai camps. <clears throat> or they'll hire some dude who got his bachelor's and never really looked <laughs> at some any training. information outside <laughs> of school. Yeah, yeah, it, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, the teams that have good SNC coaches and performance coaches are usually like multidisciplinary teams, like um, Tiger Muay Thai or um, what other camps out here? I don't even remember. But like the <laughs> MMA focus camps, yeah. American American Kick, uh, AKA or Tiger Muay Thai or the Bangtan Muay Thai, all these uh, MMA teams they usually have better nutritional support, better strength coach support behind them. Okay. I don't, I don't think the Muay Thai gyms see the benefits just yet. Interesting. Is that just like, like I, I was training at one of the gyms back in, I'm not going to name which one, but back in 2019. Yeah. They had a conditioning coach who was a, basically like a, a uh, runner or a marathon coach and all he would do <laughs> yeah. is make sure that all of the guys hit red line for each one test <laughs> session and if they don't hit red line it's not a good session damn so, so with heart rate monitor you mean just like just see, <laughs> yeah, with see heart rate monitor, the yeah yeah all, all the fighters <laughs> would have heart rate monitors on it would show up on the tv like hey you're in the yellow you need to work harder damn. that was the extent of the sports science or the SNC. This time, this dude was getting paid full time. I I'm not sure full time, but he had a position at a pretty big gym. That's crazy. Eh? I mean, I mean, I shouldn't say that's crazy because literally all over the world in every sport <clears throat> at the highest level, you get mm. the same thing. It's just yeah. probably now trickled down, <clears throat> trickled down into combat sports now that strength conditioning mm. and stuff has become more, I guess, more popular. But the idea that Muay Thai gyms there haven't kind of gone down that road, is that just a, is that a tradition thing? Like with the Thais, I mean, they spend a lot of time running and then just doing Muay Thai basically, and that's kind of how they like to do it and they don't want to change? I think an SNC coach from the West would come to Thailand and say they're doing everything mm. wrong, but somehow they're winning. Yeah. That's yeah. maybe the approach I took when I first uh, visited here like a few years ago. Mm. I don't see it that way anymore. I see it as they're obviously doing the right things in terms of training volume. Yeah. But there are some aspects of uh, sports science that we can bring into their traditional camps, like the way they peak for fights or how we manage their training load. Like, okay, <clears throat> running is good for them. It builds, mm. builds the tendons in their uh, lower leg. It builds their calves. It builds leg endurance but we don't need to do so much of it. Mm. So you mentioned about a big peaking. cultural aspect too. Yeah. You mentioned about peaking as well. How do you like to peak your guys for fire? What, what changes in those last couple of weeks? I'd say 30 to like 20 to 30% volume drop and intense uh, volume drop on their training just mm -hmm. because sparring picks up, they're getting tired. They have to cut weight. Um, is that your training that you're, I'd say like, your sorry? specific strength thing. Is that your specific strength conditioning training? You're dropping volume on or, yep. or does that include yep. their technical training? That does not include the technical training. Okay. I gotcha. don't 
really have control over that and uh, yeah. <clears throat> imagine a lot of SNC coaches that do. Yeah. Um, but that's the strength. That's the strength work. Maybe I'll probably take out all, all, if not most of the general conditioning, like the runs and the assault bike stuff. I'll take mm-hmm. it out two or three weeks out. Gotcha. Because we, we both know at that point, like you can't get fitter. It's just about dropping fatigue. So your fitness can show. Yeah. And the ties here don't do that. Oh, because just, like, all the way like, like I mentioned before, it, I don't think it's a sports science thing. I think it's a culture thing. A lot of elite ties, they train, they have like two or three week fight camps. Okay. Cause they've trained their whole lives. Their technique mm. and skill is so much higher than the foreigners here. Yeah. That they'll train for like maybe really hard for two or three weeks and then take some time off. So wow. the way they approach it is completely different. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the, what the elite Thai athletes that are now fighting in like one championship and things like that, have they taken a different approach there? I don't know if you have any insight into that, but are they doing like what you're saying yeah. there or are they taking a different approach? Um, one championships given everyone a kick in the ass, I think with the prize money now and all that money mm. on the line, they're starting to train more consistently like mm. UFC fighters would MMA, like high profile MMA fighters would. So yeah, it's, I think they're training a bit more consistently going along the lines of what would be considered best practices nowadays. Yeah. But I think habits still kick in and some of them get <laughs> a bit lazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I know people here, so I've heard some inside news and that's just how it is, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you see it in most sports, the, the top, top talented guys that not always the, uh, have the, not, or don't always have the highest work ethic. They just get by on how good they are. <laughs> yeah. The best fighters aren't always the best, um, high, high performing athletes, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and which is, which probably bursts a lot of bubbles for people looking to, to try and make it who are putting the effort in and everything. And then, but still falling short. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's more than just training and work ethic, you know? Yeah. That's a big thing I've learned traveling here is just, you have to work under their conditions and then trying to create mm. some buy-in. Like for me to go to a Muay Thai camp, a traditional one and be like, Hey, I'm an S and C coach. Here's my resume. They'll just <laughs> tell you to fuck off. <laughs> Especially if you're not Thai and you don't speak Thai, there's definitely a language yeah. barrier there. <clears throat> and it's like a trust thing. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> one interesting thing you've, you've actually been posting about over the, oh, probably a while now, I thought was quite interesting was the transitions between striking and grappling in MMA and how you've decided to I guess, attack and develop and training can essentially condition fighters for that, uh, demand that they see in MMA. Do you want to maybe dive a little bit into that and how you saw that as an issue? Was that me? What'd I say? I don't know. You posted a video of, uh, of you guys doing strike, uh, specific conditioning, pairing, (laughs) striking and grab. Well, that was for, um, like MMA specific conditioning, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that was just driving home the point I mentioned earlier, like 
doing your intervals on the heavy bag or on the dummy or mm. setting <clears throat> games within your shadow boxing or heavy bag drills just to mimic what you would in an MMA gym. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my way of saying like, Hey, these are better alternatives than just jumping on the Versa climber or jumping on the stationary bike. Gotcha. Cause if I mean, you, if you looked at the heart rate response, it would be identical. Like yeah. if you looked at two pages of heart rate responses, you couldn't tell which one was general versus specific. And mm. if that's the case, why would you not go with the specific one? Yeah. And, and I think that that transition as well, obviously having to get on and off the ground, having to go mm-hmm. from some kind of isometric grappling position, standing mm-hmm. up, then having to feel loose again to throw strike various strikes and things like that. I guess that's, that's something that can be trained and you can, again, again, conditioning, obviously more than just energy systems, you're conditioning yourself for those demands that you might encounter in the cage. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And you've been, you've been, uh, playing around, around with wearable resistance, correct? Um, with the, um, the last few months, but so, I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. With the, exigen, uh, the Lila move tech, it was good. I've used it with two or three athletes, two athletes. I've used it with two athletes. They've given me good feedback, but it wasn't like a big game changer. Hmm. Okay. I imagine it you... would. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you go, you go. I imagine it would be more beneficial for maybe cyclical sports where we're trying to get percentage increases in movement efficiency mm. and biomechanics, but I've used it with primarily strikers and yeah. the biggest effect we saw was like a good potentiation effect. After okay. using them for two or three rounds, we took them off and their kids were flying. And that lasted about, I'd say, two more rounds. So like mm. eight, ten minutes or so. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, if you're, if you're talking long-term training effects, if you did that long enough, I'm sure that that would potentially yeah. have some benefit down the line. I know if anyone's listening... And it's pretty I'm non-invasive. Sure. Mm. If you like load it correctly, it's really non-invasive. <clears throat> it doesn't change technique much. Yeah. If at all. Yeah. I think there's this, I've said this before, but people don't like punching with dumbbells because they yeah. think that it changes their form. Like, I, I used to buy into that, but not so much anymore. I don't think, I don't think striking or grappling is about perfect technique. It's about finding effective technique and then working within <clears throat> that range of what is biomechanically <clears throat> efficient for the athlete. Interesting. Yeah. Cause it's the, I, I think, yeah, that the striking with dumbbell thing about being too heavy. Sure. If you did it like all the time, but I think as well within, obviously, if you look at the heavy, uh, slave or resistance sprinting research, obviously that was the prevailing mm-hmm. thought too, back maybe a couple of decades ago where you shouldn't sprint with more than 10% of your body weight because it changes mm-hmm. the way you sprint and that can negatively affect your sprint technique. And then obviously in the past decade, a lot of researchers, has come out around, you know, using 70% of your body weight or even more to essentially improve acceleration, horizontal force, all that yeah. kind of stuff and, and translating to, you, uh, but you can also well. argue sprint technique would correlate closer to, let's say 
performance outcomes in track and field or field sports mm. than they then compared to punching technique. That's a good point to <clears throat> combat sports performance outcomes because we like to think mm. that okay if you have great punch technique that's all that matters but there's so many tactical and strategical variables in play. Yeah. That's why people argue all the time. What do we punch with our hook like this or like this? Yeah. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because different systems and different coaches will teach you different things. And it's, I think our job as coaches to understand, okay, where are the commonalities between all these training systems? And then mm. we get our principles from there and we work from there. So are you, are you using say dumbbell shadow boxing at all is, is does that form a part of your program and if so why and if not why i do it myself i hold these small like eggs they're probably <clears> like <throat> a pound each i don't mm -hmm. prescribe it but if an mm -hmm. athlete came up to me and said hey can i add weights to my shadow boxing rounds i'd be like yeah go ahead just keep it under let's say two pounds yeah is there, a lot of martial is arts there... is about feel. Like it feels different to hold a bit of weight, whether that gives mm. you a physiological effect or not. You can I can hold it for three rounds and then do unweighted for another three rounds, and that's going to give me different feedback. Okay, and yeah, like that, that answered my question. Fighters liking that feedback is enough for me to be like, okay, let, let's keep it. Gotcha. I don't really I mean, need to it... go into deep into research and be like. Hey, it changes our punch angle by two degrees and hey, the research says it doesn't help. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. And if anyone's interested in, in learning more about what we're talking about with the exogen lighter, a few episodes back with uh, Joe uh, Dolcetti, it's, it's uh, must be two or three episodes back now where we, we do a deep dive into the exogen suit there. But what I really what I think has big, app, uh, good applications, at least within grappling is the idea of mm -hmm. even potentially within boxing was the bodysuit during weight cutting. So being able to add the weight back on that you're losing, uh, during a weight cut and then still training with it on and training with that weight and taking it off a couple of weeks or a week or so before, and then training without that weight and then just seeing, I've actually never thought about that. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Anymore. So there was so... a case. So it was, um, I won't say who did it, but basically it was the guy was training for oh, his we, first. We're keeping it secretive over here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No name drops. I heard his name once and I was like, oh, shit, it was that guy. But then it wasn't a fighter. It was um, <clears throat> another coach. And so he was running a, I think he was running his first triathlon or ultra or whatever. And as he was training and as he was losing weight from all the training, he was adding that weight back on with the vest. And so he would train at his same body weight at the beginning, all the way through his prep. And then one or two weeks out, he took the vest off and then, and then just like had fucking crazy endurance PBs. He hit PBs based just doing that. Well, faster race times. Right. Right. And I was like, damn, that's like thinking about the application of that within weight cutting sports, being able to train. I mean, it's, it's pretty much non-invasive because they're kind of just like sticky things you put on. You could box yeah, with that. That's, that's one of my biggest philosophies. Like, <laughs> if we're experimenting with something, it should be non-invasive from yeah. a skill expression standpoint. Yeah. If it, if it doesn't really hurt the fighter, and we don't have to change the whole training schedule because of one training modality or method, yeah, then I think it's worth a try. And I think that's the 
arts part of martial arts and combat sports. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I mean, like so that's, literally that's, just what, that's why I think like sports. when sports scientists come into combat sports with very rigid models on what performance should be, and we point to the physiology textbooks and all this stuff. I think they're falling a bit short, and they're not acknowledging the arts and the culture of combat sports. Do you think SNCs in combat sports should have maybe some, or should be at least training the martial arts or have a background in them? Then, obviously, it's that's always a contentious debate within coaching. Is you know, mm-hmm. should you whether should you need you to be, be yeah, whether you need to be part of that sport, yeah. Personally, it helps me connect with my athletes. Um, Like I have a bigger, I I have more experience with striking sports than I do grappling sports. So even when I train grapplers, I can put together a great strength training program in terms of skill development and uh, skill periodization. I feel like I don't have as big of a say and maybe I can bridge the gap a bit more if I grappled a lot more. And I understood mm. all the principles behind submission grappling and wrestling, and I competed myself, but that's just not the case. I don't think it makes you a worse strength coach. You can still understand the demands of the sport really well. But if you're trying to bridge the gap and you're trying to become more than a strength coach, if you're trying to become mm. a performance coach and kind of influence skill development and how the training camp goes, I think it's much better if you have experience in the sport. Yeah, no, for sure. And obviously there's, there's different, all sports have different cultures as well. Like it's mm-hmm. like, for example, to take a really broad examples, like rugby and soccer, I mean, those are two, like yep. those worlds are complete opposites when it comes to training. I mean, I couldn't imagine working in a, with a soccer team or a soccer environment. It would be hell <laughs> just like, mm-hmm allergic to all hard training allergic to weights allergic to right. everything in that versus sport like rugby where you know the gym is kind of part is part and parcel with the training there so it's uh, i know what you mean obviously and then obviously within combat sports you i mean you have slightly different um cultures within the different martial arts too right so yeah yeah i mean it's 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 all a but the uh, culture tells us a lot and it gives <clears throat> us a starting point for example muay thai culture they're not big on heavy lifting yeah which kind of tells us it's not really needed it could be used mm. effectively if you know what you're doing yeah but these tie fighters aren't winning because they're stronger on the paper. other guy like, exactly yeah. they're not squatting more than another guy they're building strength within the clinching drills and striking and just building years and years of volume that, that's the always the, the interesting thing. I've, I've come across this so much with different athletes. Mm-hmm. Guys who are complete dog shit in the gym, you know, lift fuck all. Yeah. And then they and then they come into wrestling base drills, grappling drills, clinching stuff. <clears throat> and man, they get a hold of you and you cannot move. And it's, it's completely yeah. different. And you, you think, okay, this guy can't even squat 60, 100 kilos, barely bench presses, barely does his gym work. But then when he's out there doing that stuff, he it's just like, it's like their farm boy strength, right? Like they just come and they yeah. have this rugged strength where they can do anything to anyone that just can't lift the weights. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we categorize squats and deadlifts as strength training, but 
we consider clinching, which is also a display of strength. We just consider mm. that, oh, that's skills. That's not strength training. Mm. Even though our muscles are contracting the same way. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's categorizations. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, what's your take on the, um, I guess you could say it's a trend <clears throat> within, it's probably more of a trend within grappling and stuff now than it is within striking, mm. I think. <clears throat> I think striking kind of went through its phase of, oh, I mean, it's probably still going on, but went through a, a phase of real specific style strength training. But for grapplers, you see a lot of it now with a lot of, with jujitsu becoming so popular. You see yeah, a lot I've of stuff it. like, yeah, I mean, I've like saw guys the on their of, back, like they're trying to be an open like, guard and they got like bands yeah. on their knees. Yep. Or dudes <clears throat> being an open guard or being like De La Hiva and, and somebody pushing on his leg as an isometric or, <laughs> I saw that the other day. Yeah. Um, what else did I see? Just, just guard stuff and people being in these positions and then using that as part of their strength training. What's your take on that? Um, I'd say my general take on special exercises in general. I mean, you can look at the bonder Chuck kind of pyramid and see the mm. definition of special development, special developmental exercises. We're either working the skills in parts or we're trying to mm. overload the skill. I think the problem is when Bonderchuk made these definitions, it was, correct me if I'm wrong, for track and field athletes, which yeah, were throws. mainly power sports for hammer throws mm. and discus. So any like percentile increase in strength relates or sorry i would say transfers more to performance outcomes than it would in combat sports in combat sports mm. let's say in submission grappling we're not looking at how hard you can close your knees together and then we're measuring your adductor strength mm. right? yeah it's about leverages and position mm -hmm. so again the big tactical <clears throat> and strategical element in combat sports kind of negates any small percentage increases in physical abilities yeah yeah for sure and i think uh, a good example you mean obviously there when you talk about it, it's not how hard you squeeze your legs together if someone's if you're in some kind of garden someone moves your leg you need to have the technical knowledge to be able to okay he does this i do this or i'm doing something to stop him doing that and that very rarely comes down to how strong you are in a certain position you should be able to kind of flow and move between positions exactly and yeah. But yeah, like, I would want my athletes to maintain, like, maintain or increase their minimum level of strength, just so it's kind of like in the bag. Yeah. But it's all about how you apply those physical abilities. Yeah, for sure. And and if anyone's interested in in the Bondachuk pyramid that that Jeffrey referenced, if you go back, Martin Bingasa, one of the older episodes, he dives right into that. He trained under Bondachuk with his hammer throwing. So he goes deep into that. And also with Nick Garcia, not too long ago too, he uses the Bonnachuk system. He's friends with Martin. He uses the Bonnachuk system with his high school athletes um, and dives into stuff. We dive into some stuff there as well with Institute But man, I, th I think we cover most of the topics here, here Jeffrey. If anyone wants mm -hmm. to find you and, and follow what you're doing and everything, where can they do that? Uh, I'm most active on Instagram um, at GCP training. Um, I have a lot of articles on my website, which are kind of old, but gcperformancetraining.com. <laughs> you'll find the ebooks, yep. you'll find the programs there.
Um, I'm working hard to release a couple of eBooks, a lot of combat sports programs, um, SNC programs, some skill development in there as well. But from, I'd say March till the end of the year, I'm going to be, I'm going to be releasing three or four projects. So awesome on that. Nice. Uh, and I bought Jeffrey's first book he had on uh, his combat sports pre- preparation. It's really good. So if anyone's interested in that, that is a, uh, it covers a lot of the things Jeffrey talked about here too, and uh, with his philosophy. So that's definitely yeah. worth copying. Volume two is going to blow it away. Oh, I've nice. had what, I like uh, three, I would have had, by the time I released volume two, I would have had three years of three years more to experience. build on. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man.